Thanks for pressing play. Nothing is more important than your health. And as the recent controversies around masks and vaccines and the like have proven, learning to make smart, complex healthcare choices is hard and it's getting harder, especially in a world of massive healthcare information and disinformation. Our guest today is Talia Maronschatz, and she's a PhD and a recognized expert on healthcare decision making. She has her doctorate in psychology from the Hebrew University, and she studied with Nobel laureate Danielle Kahneman. She's also a professor at the Ono Academic College, as well as a visiting researcher at Cambridge University. Daniel Kahneman, who, as you know, is most well known for writing the amazing book, Thinking Fast and Slow, says, quote, with a fine combination of humor, compassion and vast knowledge, Talia Maronschatz offers a clear and useful guidance for the hardest decisions of life. And we go deep on her new book and everything that you need to know and your family needs to know about making critical healthcare decisions. I think you're going to find this episode both riveting and timely. And don't forget to check out her new book. It's called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Healthcare. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And some podcast reviewers call us, quote, overrated, not worth it, and offensive. No matter what you call us, we are the Real Dialogue podcast for business people who value real, different dialogue. Uh, Go to Lockhead.com and check out Category Pirates, our newsletter. It's sort of like the Harvard Business Review, if HBR was written for and by pirates. And while you're checking it out, don't forget you can get a 20% discount on subscriptions of four or more. So go to Lockhead.com and click on Newsletter for Category Pirates. Now, hey-ho, let's go. You know, looking into your background, you spent a lot of time on the topic of happiness, did you not? Yes, I did, actually. So tell me about what it means to study happiness. You know, that's that's a really funny thing. I mean, not to ask, it's a great question, but it's a funny thing because the way we studied happiness was very organized. It's like the opposite of what you think about when you think about happiness, because we looked at uh, people's activities throughout the day and what brings them joy in their activities. And when I joined that study with Daniel Kahneman, and actually it was it was very cool. It was my interview for the postdoc position was in the car. We had a car ride together for an hour. He said, I have to get from place A to place B. Will, is that okay? I'm like, sure, I'll go for the field trip option. Then I tell myself, you're an idiot. Why, what, who says field trip? What's wrong with you? But during the field trip, I talked to him about a concept that you may have read about and that's the peak end rule so for example he did work with colonoscopies and he showed with uh dr rettelmeyer that when the end is more gentle people remember the whole episode as better so it it can be weird because you have a longer episode of pain nobody likes a colonoscopy but apparently when it's milder when the end is milder it's better and therefore he came up with a peak end rule and I said, you know, that's that's great, but that's great for a very distinct episode. It's like 
my colonoscopy. It starts and it ends. I think that with things like my day, it's like, you know, you, there's no ta-da moment at the end of the day. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And you just go on to the next day. So I was curious about looking at that. And in fact, I found that ends don't matter. Uh, what I did do, what I did find, and I love it, it was like my contribution to this work. I included the notion of peak moments and low moments. So I asked, um, was there a moment that was unusually wonderful or thrilling? And was there a moment that was unusually bad or awful? And I specifically chose this wording, which was extreme. I didn't want it to be benign. I wanted it to be like, yes, or, oh God, yeah, it was terrible. And we saw that when people, it was women, only women, when they had mostly a low, that really tainted their day. And it could have been very short. It could have been a small thing bad. It just, it, it didn't matter the average of your day. It's like, who cares? I had a really bad moment. That's the happiness part of it. That last experience we have matters a lot. Yes. It's the, it's the one that sort of is informs our opinion of how we're doing. It does, but only in very distinct episodes like your doctor's visit or like a medical examination or maybe like a date. These are things that have a very clear beginning and end and they don't just melt into, into something else. That's basically what, what we found. And yet most of our lives are not in the middle of a peak moment or in the middle of a low moment is kind of in an in-between moment. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good. Yeah, precisely. So how, how do we, how do we measure happiness as we're measuring peak and low moments? So first of all, it's really important to know that low moments make us very unhappy and we want to avoid them. I'm, I was going to say, we want to avoid them at all costs. We can't really always avoid them, but we should know that they make us feel very bad. Even if it's just one thing, it's still going to make us feel bad. And likewise, I think we should cherish our, our peaks and they can be small. And we had really interesting peaks. Like one woman said her peak was my husband won two trees in a silent auction. So that's even a vicarious peak. Like it didn't happen to her. It happened to someone she loves, but that was great. So we should just cherish and be happy with those moments and, and sort of elevate them and give them attention. I think that's not many people remember that, but Daniel Kahneman is initially, he started out as a psychologist and he studied perception. So attention is a huge part of this. Whatever draws your attention, whatever you pay attention to determines how you feel. You know, if you have a kid and they hurt their knee and they're crying, you say, oh, look at the bird. And that they forget that their knee hurts. Why? The knee, exactly. The attention went elsewhere. So... So we can play with that. We can play with that. And that helps us. We're very, you know, we're very interesting creatures. We can dominate our emotions, at least to a degree. Well, and one of the things I've read and I've used, frankly, as a technique myself in my own life is when we're feeling bad about something, when we're feeling depressed about something, uh, get busy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my case, I try to go and work. Or I try to go and do something physical. I'll go for a long bike ride or something like that. And um, it's hard to be depressed when you're on a bike ride. It's hard to be depressed if you say, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, in my case, I write a newsletter. And so I'm always in some kind of a creative flow with my partners. And so 
if I just say, fuck the world, I'm going to just dive into whatever we're working on next. Even if I'm upset, even if something terrible has happened to me in the day, unless it's like a massive terrible, but if it's, if I could call it a normal bad feeling, if I could call it that, if I bury myself in, in, in creative work, I sort of, it sort of goes away. It's literally to take your mind off the thing that's upsetting you. That's precisely what it is. And that's great. You know, to the degree that we can apply this technique, it's wonderful. I, I actually, there's part of it that I don't like, and it relates to medicine. And I write about it. I have a book that's coming out. It's called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. And what I'm going to say, you might think I'm a pessimist. I'm really not. I'm a very chipper sort of person. But when I look at the when I look at the narrative around cancer, for example, around various diseases, it feels like it's almost illegitimate to say I'm sad, I I'm I'm sick and I'm scared, or I hate it, or it hurts. It's almost as though you can't say these things. You have to say cancer is the biggest present I ever got, and maybe some people feel this way. That's very alive and authentic and helpful for them, but. It's not how everyone feels, and we, we really don't want to have thought police ever, and certainly not when people are, are experiencing uh, adverse life events. So, Doctor, why are we so uncomfortable both expressing as well as hearing uh, somebody, and particularly people we love, say things like, I'm scared, uh, I fucking hate this, um, or you know, even more powerful things, I don't want to die, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know, we recently wrote a newsletter, a category pirates newsletter, on that we believe it's time to redesign the category of death. Hmm. That the way we die in North America, I'd be curious to hear about Israel, um, but the way we die here in North America, in our opinion, is insane. We essentially outsource the end of life to people who don't even know our loved one, and a lot of them die alone. And of course. We've seen this in the most painful way possible with COVID. And so our, our argument is that if uh, death is one of the most important moments in life, we should treat it the way we treat birth and we would want to be with our loved one. And so, but, but many people run from these raw, horrible, or what are seemingly what we're told are horrible emotions that, that we can't confront. Uh, I'm curious how you feel about this. I feel very much the way you do, actually. I wrote an entire chapter about talking about death. I call it Dance Me to the End of Life. And, you know, the fact that we walk away from talking about it. Doctor, I hate to interrupt you, but do you see the Leonard Cohen album behind me? Of course. So when you say Dance Me to the End of Life, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm sorry to interrupt. Please keep going. No, no, of course, you know, Leonard Cohen fan is always, always welcome to interrupt. Um, I think part of what happened to us is we are so in love, so enamored with the idea of empowerment that we walk away from a moment where we can't help or we can't change the reality. We cannot. And it's not just us, you and me. It's not just patients. It's not just caregivers. It's also physicians. Doctors also walk away from talking about end of life with their patients. And sometimes they don't tell the patient, look, this is the end, or there's really nothing I can do for you right now. And sometimes what the patient wants is the honesty, is the presence of the doctor. And this is 
this is really kind of unspoken and I think it's tragic. The way I propose, I, you know, it's presumptuous to say to solve it, but to at least tackle it is something that I call TAD and that's talk about death. And I want to bring it as part of our repertoire. So basically that talking about death won't be the thing you do when your uncle is about to die and he's all miserable and you've never spoken to him or to anyone about death. You're like, how do I do this? But it's something that you do and stay tuned around your milestone birthday. Why? Because when you're turning 30 or 40 or 50, you're like, holy crap, what have I done with my life? Where did they get to? You know, you're, you're taking inventory of your life. And this is, this is really funny. The years that end with a nine are the years that most people sign up for a marathon and they run the fastest compared with other ages. So it's like, there's a sense of almost it's now or never, you know, you're gonna, you're turning 40. You're also going to turn 41. <laughs> you're just going to go for a beer when you're 41, when you're 40, you're like, this is the end of life. So I want to use that. I want to harness that. I want to, yay. I want to go for something that, as I said, I call it TAD, is talk about death and to do it around our, our milestone birthday, essentially the day before, you know, I don't want to put a dampener on the party, but to just talk about what would I want it to be like? What do I not want to happen to me? Like in terms of intubation or all these things that we've been seeing on TV all the time. I know it's weird. I understand, but I think if we overcome the weirdness and we do it when we're 30, when we're 40, you do it with your spouse, with your friend, with your parent, it becomes part of the repertoire. And then you know what they want. They know what you want. God forbid, you know, you go hiking, you fall off a cliff. They're not like, oh my God, what would he want us to have? What would he want us to do? I have no idea. They know because they have spoken about it. And that's, I think that's actually yes. very empowering. Once you overcome that sense of, I don't want to talk about it. I can't agree with you more, doctor. And um, we have had an experience in our family uh, of late where um, someone we love very deeply was in a horrible accident and uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury and succumbed to those injuries. And um, when we got to this place where it was very clear that um, there was no pathway to recovery, I mean, the brain scans were very, very clear. Uh, the conversations we were able to have with uh, his doctors, with ultimately hospice and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, to your point, we literally said things, um, Talia, like, we know this man. This man's our brother. We've had these conversations. We've sat down over scotch and said, if the worst happens, here's how I want to be treated. Here's what I would like to have happen. Here's my wish for my family. Uh, we have had these discussions over years. And so as we were making these decisions, A, we as a family who loved him very much, still do, I'm sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get emotional, but um, we were able to make these decisions that sound like very hard decisions. And on one hand, you could argue they are, but in our case, they actually weren't. It was very clear what he wanted. And it was very clear once the doctors were able to tell us, this is where we, this is where we're at. We are essentially at the end. It's interesting. I, I want to ask you why doctors won't say that to us, but I'll get to that in a second. Sure. But in those moments where we had to make these exact kind of decisions that you're talking about, the one thing for sure we could cling to was we knew this man. We had had this conversation about all of us. He knew what we wanted. 
We, he, we knew what we, he wanted for his children. We knew what he wanted for his life, et cetera, et cetera. And so when it came time to make the decisions, they were horrible decisions, but they were clear decisions. So I'm very, very sorry that this is your experience. Of course, you're getting emotional. It would be weird if you weren't. Um, I'm, I'm getting emotional on my side as well. Um, I, I really, I can't say it's a great illustration. That sounds crass, but what you're saying really proves the point that we're in such a difficult place and you had no quandaries, you have no remorse. It was clear your, your brother, may rest in peace, got what he wanted. You could help, you could be there. You didn't have to say, well, what would he want? And how can I do this? And how can I do that? And I think that's such a huge relief. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And, you know, none of us want to be in there in that place, but we might end up there. So let's power up in case, in case we get there. And if we don't get there, then we, you know, we just had scotch and had a, a mildly depressing conversation. And that's really not the end of the world. Yes. This, now I want to move to the medical profession and, and look, I'm not an expert, but I am a guy who's lost some people he loves in life. And I have dealt with the medical profession on this topic more than once. And my personal experience um, is not a positive one the, with, with doctors, uh, nurses, uh, and institutions. They, they don't appear to know how to care for the patient and the family in this situation. That's been my experience. Um, but I'm curious, tell me sort of where the medical profession, where you think the medical profession is now on helping someone transition as well as helping the family deal with someone who is transitioning to the other side. It's not their job in a way, in a way it's not their job in a way they do the medical things and they don't necessarily do the emotional things. They don't necessarily know how to, and that is crucial. You know, you had mentioned birth before. I also studied birth and I know that birth, poses a lot of challenges, but when the doctor is there with the woman, when he explains, when he helps her partake in decision-making, that can be very, very quick. It doesn't, it doesn't stop the course of delivery. And when some emotion is expressed, and that can be just looking someone in the eye saying, I'm going to do my best for you. That's all you can ever promise, but that's huge. Then that's already a lot. So let's, let's go back to death. Why won't doctors talk about it? I think they perceive it as a failure on their behalf. It's like I failed my patient. I haven't saved them where the truth of the matter is that we're all going to die. I mean, we don't, we don't like that, but that's the truth. And if you die on someone's shift, then it just happened. It doesn't mean they're a bad doctor. Um, I think they're afraid of upsetting their patients. The whole emotional realm is so present in medicine. And yet doctors aren't necessarily trained to deal with it. There was a study showing that doctors really, really don't want to ask, how are you feeling or go to the emotional place because they're afraid that the floodgates would open. And I'm not just talking about end of life, just who, yeah, like you're going to sit in their office for three hours and, and talk about how you're feeling. It takes like two minutes, actually, for you to talk about how you're feeling and Another truth is that people so crave this connection that if the doctor doesn't ask them, 
they'll nag, they'll, they'll do something. They'll want to have this attention and care. So back to medicine, someone is ill. What do you do with them? What do you do with their family? They're not your patients. You're not necessarily skilled at, at treating them. Certainly not in an ordinary medical setting. If you go to hospice, if you go to palliative care, they have a different view of things. They're not just looking at the procedures they can do. They look at the person and they want them to get to have as good a death as possible. They think about their life, their quality of life as they are still alive. And they realize that family is, is a big part of that. It's not about having another uh, injection or another thing that probably will not help. But that takes a tremendous amount of honesty. Um, and I want to tell you something even sadder. I looked at how hospitals help physicians deal with death, with their patients' death, because that's hard. So I looked at a study that examined child oncology departments. Now, how awful is that? And how brave of a person do you need to be to say, I want to treat children? And some of them will pass. And that's just terrible. And the interventions that these ho the hospitals have for these physicians are subpar. They don't usually hire the best faculty to create the interventions. Sometimes they don't advertise the interventions. It's like, you know, whatever, your emotions, just deal with it, almost. That's the hidden message. So if this is the hidden message, or basically not so hidden, just implied, then why are we surprised that the physicians aren't exactly equipped to deal with our emotions. And so here's a question. Why not? Um, and I'll share with you on the positive side. Mm -hmm. So this horrible situation I'm describing where my brother-in-law was passing, um, the facility he was in, um, suffice it to say, it's a good thing I'm a man of peace. <laughs> because the way he was treated... Yes. Uh, it was extraordinarily maddening to the point where I had to call the chief medical officer. It took me over an hour to get her on the phone. I refused. They hung up on me once. I said, you're hanging up on me. My brother-in-law's dying in your facility and you're fucking hanging up on me. I threatened to go to the media. I threatened all sorts of things. And I finally got through to the chief medical officer. And I said, what the fuck do we have to do to get him out of your facility? Mm. And that's what it took. And look, I understand it was during COVID and I, I get all that. But the reality is, at least in this facility, at least in this circumstance, to your point, the minute it became clear there was no path forward for him, they didn't know what to do. He fell into a, a hole. Now, having said that, you said that doctors sort of view this. This is not their job. And on one dimension, I can understand that. And in this case... There was a doctor who decided it was her job. Mm -hmm. And that doctor is my doctor and my wife's doctor, who was not our brother-in-law's doctor. And she spoke to us virtually every day throughout this whole process. She cried with us. She supported us. Ultimately, we brought Michael to our house and we home hospiced him for the last week of his life. And she supported us and coached us through the whole thing. She cried with us. And at one point, Tyler, I said to her, uh, her name's uh, Kathy Halston, Dr. Catherine Halston. I said to her, Dr. Kathy, you know, through tears, I'm forever grateful 
that your definition of caring for us includes this. I hear you. I think, you know, you said so many important words. One word you didn't say is relationship. And that's what comes out of, of what you're telling me. There's a relationship there. Dr. Kathy has been my doctor for 25 years. I love her. She's a family member. There you go. There you go. And that is incredible. And that is fortunate. And that creates a level of trust and care. I mean, the word care, it's almost ridiculous that we say healthcare. Who cares? If the person actually cares for you, that's a miracle. Well, that's wonderful. And you're describing a person who actually cared. And by the way, you haven't told me any medical miraculous intervention that she did. She did her miracle through relationship, through caring, through being with you, through empathizing yes. with you. And you don't, you don't think that she's a bad doctor. You never said she couldn't save him because she never said she could. All she could do was to make sure he would have a peaceful death and be with you because you were part of the picture. And that's tremendous and that's enormous. And the more doctors realize that, the better death can be. And the better, by the way, life can be for those who live on, because that is not a simple experience at all. So I think that's, yes. that's enormous. The other part of the story, uh, I think that's important for you to know, one of our best friends uh, is a now retired a head nurse named Stephanie Hansen. And she was the head nurse uh, in charge of hospice in um, Tahoe for years. Mm -hmm. And so as this was playing out, one of the big problems we had was once there was no more care that could be given to him, once we knew um, that we were at the end of the road, there was nowhere for him to go because of COVID. There was no place for him. And so Stephanie said to us, you know, you could home hospice him. And it was, it was something we had not thought about. We are not educated in this. We didn't know this option, really. We, who, you know, who the fuck ever thinks of these things? And so we ended up doing that. And so we were in this extraordinary situation, doctor, where we had the love and care of our family doctor that was extraordinary. And we had the love and care of, and support mm -hmm. of a dear friend who, by the grace of God, was a 20 plus year hospice head nurse. And so the medical profession through, through that vehicle, if you will, enabled us to do some things to create an end of life experience that was uh, uh, really quite magical. And so I guess my question in all of that is, mm -hmm. you know, if you go back to Tad, why aren't we as a, as a culture, as a society, having a broad conversation about Tad? Why aren't we having a broad conversation about, um, we, we plan weddings, Mm -hmm. We plan births. We plan all that. We plan graduations in detail. We have wedding planners. Why is there no wedding planner for end of life? Wow. That's, that's a really good question. Part of it, I think part of it is goes into funerals and you mentioned Israel and America. So in Israel, a funeral is something that happens, especially in Jerusalem. You're not allowed to, the dead should be buried the same day. Maximum. One night, they are in the morgue. So, boom, people die. You can't tell whether they had they were billionaires or paupers. Everyone's funeral looks exactly the same. There are no caskets. There's everything is is identical. We stand very little by. There's a very clear religious ceremony, 
but there's no event planning. I actually think there are benefits and there, there are benefits to, to each thing, but I think we really shun from discussing that, from thinking about it. The, the thought that we will age, the thought that we will decay. Just just think about anti-aging. How many anti-aging creams can you find at any Walgreens? A ton is my guess, right? Because we don't want to age. People Botox, when they're super young, they, everybody wants to look young. It's like we're, we're staving off that stage of being old, like, oh, dying. Who, who wants to think about dying? And And I really think that is a super important conversation to have. I was actually really struck by something you said. You said we were not educated about this option. And I think that's amazing. That's amazing for you to say these words. You're a smart man with all of your connections in media, in high tech. And you're telling me we were not educated. What does that mean? That means look how important this conversation is to have. Because clearly you could Google this, you know, if it was anything else, you would be Googling the shit out of it and you would be figuring out really quickly. But you were in a very typical position of a patient and of a caregiver, freaked out, overwhelmed, very concerned. When you're the patient, you're also in physical pain. You're not at your best and nobody can expect you to be at your best, which really means this is not the moment to be learning about these things, that the whole gamut of what's out there, what's available should be should be discussed much earlier, much sooner. I mean, we watch so many shows on TV, so many hospital shows, and we, we could all qualify for NMD if if we had uh, if based on the amount of hours that we watched every every show, starting with ER and and whatnot. Um, but we don't look at death. We don't know. How, how come Doctor McDreamy never taught us any of this? <laughs> You know, ask Dr. McDreamy. I think people would turn off to anything, anything. But with regards to COVID, I thought this is amazing. We see the numbers of the dead every day. And by the way, people died before COVID and they still die, not just of COVID. But never before has it been that you open, you turn, turn on the TV and you see the numbers of people who passed. It's like, wow, this is crazy create such an awareness of death. And I thought, are people looking for advanced directives? Guess what? No, no, they didn't want to think about it. They just did not want to think about it. That's why, that's why I love TAD because it's like a party thing. It's a bit quirky and it's not, it doesn't have this heaviness of, oh my God, I'm going to die. Let's not talk about it. Hopefully it will catch on. But you were going to ask me something else. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem. I'll, I'll chase you down. I'll follow <laughs> you down any rabbit hole you want to go, doctor. <laughs> I'm curious then if we sort of zoom out to sort of the work of your new book to healthcare decisions mm -hmm. overall. And it strikes me as somebody who's interacted with the healthcare system my whole life that we, we, we don't really have a template for understanding healthcare decisions. And in some cases, decisions happen very, very quickly, and we don't understand the ramifications of, of what's happening. And so, and best I can tell, as the technology and the breakthroughs continue, which seem to be accelerating, not decelerating, and we recently had on Sergey Young from the, uh, the Vision Fund. He's an investor mm -hmm. who invests in, quote unquote, longevity technologies, and he says he's going to live to 120 
and he's currently about 50. And he says, we're going to have people living to 150 and 100 and, uh, and 200 as these technology breakthroughs happen. And we have, of course, robot surgery happening now and uh, liver replacements and all these sciencey fiction things, if you're a, a person of a certain age. And so my, my, I guess my point is, it feels like as a layman that the decisions are getting more complex, having more broad implications. And yet I don't know that we are really, really know as consumers, if you will, mm-hmm. what the fuck we're deciding. No, we don't. <laughs> We don't, you know, even before, even before the super fancy stuff. And I'm thinking, do I want to live to be 225? That's interesting. I don't know. So I'll put that aside, but just go back to something very, very mundane. You come to the hospital, they explain stuff to you and you don't understand. They explain it to you in medicalese. You don't know, you don't understand the language. And as you said, we are not educated. I had the funniest experience. I was interviewing a doctor on her experiences as a patient and I was writing everything down on my laptop ever so quickly. I got every term wrong, every single one, other than bronchitis. I misspelled everything she said. I didn't want to cut her off. We didn't have a ton of time speaking. I also did not want to appear stupid. There you go. No, she knows me. She knows I'm not stupid. My only stupidity was not asking, but that is very real. That's very real and tangible and doesn't have to happen in the context of some science fiction-y events just with our triglycerides and our very mundane stuff. And, you know, I, I study, I work a lot with pharmaceutical companies and I study how people choose medication, for example, and... I study um, how people choose medication for atrial fibrillation. First of all, that's the most ridiculous name of a condition you could think of. It's like, what is atrial fibrillation? What are you talking like? What, why, why are you making up words? You know, nobody understands what this means. And people really don't understand. They, they know very little about their medication. So we don't have to go to the fancy stuff to realize that we don't understand the terms. We also don't understand the probabilities so I, I can have a fancy surgery that would make me live to be whenever, whatever, but is it going to work? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the complications? These are questions that I encourage people to ask. For how many people out of 100 will this work? You know, and this is especially, it's crucial when we're talking about stuff that is very emotional. So when someone is, is on their deathbed, and they're offered a treatment, they'll take it because it offers hope. But, and and they have every right to, by the way, and that's very important for me to say, people should choose as befits them based upon their preferences and their values. Obviously, I can't tell anyone what to choose, I shouldn't. The only thing that I'm super adamant about is that I think people should understand what we're saying to them, what doctors are saying, and when they are offered something, they should know. Is it going to work in three out of a hundred people or in 97 out of a hundred people? That's different. You can choose whether or not to take it, but you should, you should know this is information that you should be told. I want to, I want to say something about digital health and that's going to be, that's going to sound a little funny because digital health is science fictiony and I don't know. And, and it's been amazing with COVID. It's been really a lifesaver. But I think it's most beneficial when it's combined with psychology, 
when it's combined with behavioral economics. And I'll give you a very simple example, which is great. It's this device that was this app that was used with uh, type 1 diabetes teenagers. So basically, they had their blood sugar level measurement, and two things happened. No, three. One was they were shown a trend. So where are you today with your blood sugar measurement? Um, where's it going? Like today, yesterday, yesterday, today, where are you going to be tomorrow? Uh-huh. You may not want to get there. So you don't have to get there in order to be alarmed. Then they ask you, how, how did you get to this point, dude? And you say, well, you know, maybe I wasn't exercising. Maybe my, my sister baked some cookies and I had seven. And because this is stuff that only you know. And that's very non-digital, right? That's the most commonplace question you could ask. There's nothing techy about it at all. It's a moment of introspection and it's a moment of reckoning. And then the third thing to do is what, what are you going to do differently tomorrow? And you say, I'm going to put that cookie jar far away from me. I'm not going to touch it. Or I don't know. I'll ask my sister to like slap my wrist if I touch it. And she's, and she's mighty strong. So I don't want to go there. And again, this is not techie at all. This is psychological, and this is all about accountability, and it's very personal. And so you talk about, and it's a fascinating statement, the intersection of medicine mm-hmm. and behavioral economics. What does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you an example. About half people who are prescribed depression medication get off the medication. Not because they don't need it anymore, but because they think they don't need it anymore. They're wrong for the most part. I mean, if you're, if you suffer from depression and the, the medicine kicks in and you no longer feel depressed, that's wonderful. And you should keep on taking your medication because if you get off the medicine without discussing with your doctor, you're going to have very bad symptoms, exactly the ones that you don't want to have. So this is the type of realization that people need to have. How do we do that? We can use something very simple like a streak. You have a winning streak, like you check off a box for every day you take your medication and you have a streak. And Jerry Seinfeld has that, by the way, I think on his wall for every day that he writes comedy and he writes comedy because, you know, he doesn't want the streak to break. So the streak is a benefit that you create for yourself, regardless of how you feel. Maybe you've just started taking the depression medication and you're still depressed and you hate life and you feel that the medicine isn't working. Never mind. You have the streak and you hang on to it and you stay and you stay with it and you stick with it and it gives you a benefit that you don't change. Another thing, and that's that was really beautiful. I gave a talk in in New York, I think it was Habit Labs, there was a very hip people came to the meetup and I was speaking and I was talking about people taking their meds. And one of the, one of the guys, it was around maybe 30 max, he said, I have to take medication for my thyroid condition and I hate it. I said, yeah, maybe you hate it because it makes you feel sick. He's like, yeah. I said, how about if you thought about it as this is keeping me from being sick. This is me taking great care of myself. The same way you go to the gym and he looked at me like I just said the smartest thing in the world. And it's all about reframing. So, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, they have prospect theory and they talk about the reference point. Where am I? Where am I? And where, where am I looking at? If there's a place that's better, that's the gain domain. There's a place that's worse. 
there's the lost deal. If every time I take the pill, I feel bummed. I feel like this is pulling me in the lost domain. This is telling me you're sick, you need help, blah, blah, blah. That's bad. If every time I do it, I tell myself, hey, I'm doing great by myself. I'm so smart. You know, I'm going to, I feel good and I'm going to keep on feeling good. That's very different. And that's a mindset. And it's especially important with chronic conditions. I mean, this, this guy, the advertising agency in Pennsylvania, I drive there and I wait to meet with the CEO and the accountant tells me, I take my heart medication every day for the past 24 years. Every day I prevent a heart attack. And I loved it. That was just so smart. He wasn't saying this is not doing anything. Well, thank God it's not doing anything. You know what? If you, if you lay off your atrial fibrillation, medication with a funny name, you might end up having a stroke. Huh? Well, that's not so funny anymore. So if you explain to yourself that there's a benefit, even if you don't feel it, you're much better off. And, and in fact, doctors know that. And I think they're super, super frustrated with their patients. It's like, this is what you have to do. This is the medical benefit. Why the heck aren't you doing it? And the reason is you know, because lazy or we don't understand or we feel bad about it it's mostly psychology well so so interesting you said something there that really sort of fired my ears up you said you, you used the term reframing mm-hmm. and let me bounce an idea off you and get a reaction uh in the united states we don't have a vaccine problem we have a vaccine category problem we have a vaccine communication problem. Mm-hmm. We have a vaccine framing problem. This is a marketing category design communication problem because, you know, and I've talked to my doctor about this and I have some friends in the medical profession and they're very frustrated because they say, well, we've created this magical treatment that will save your life. And half the country refuses to take it. And so um, is it a framing problem? Oh, it's a so many things problem. Let's t- take it apart for a minute. I think, yes, in a way, it definitely is a framing problem. And it's not just in the U.S., by the way. If you read tweets from France, for example, they're talking about that proof of vaccination when you enter a restaurant like you're, there's going to be in New York City. Um, they called it a dystopian nightmare. Really? I'm like, I think for me, a dystopian nightmare is, is a lockdown. Like when police are not letting me leave my house or when hundreds of thousands of people are dying, that's a nightmare. Not having to show proof of vaccination at a restaurant, like really get a grip. Um, so there's a lot of framing happening. People are saying um, it's experimental. I don't want to be experimented on. Um, it hasn't been tested for long enough. And yeah, that's true. It has not been tested for as long as other vaccines have. But guess what? It's a pandemic. Like, would you rather wait and see how it works in 15 years? I think not. We really don't have the time. So that's a major issue. Um, people are just not believing. And if you compare the numbers of, of those who are vaccinated and get in a hot in the hospital with COVID, as opposed to those who are not vaccinated and end up in the hospital or end up dead without being vaccinated. It seems so evident. It's like, oh my God, 
this vaccine is actually helping. Why wouldn't you take it? And it's, it's in a way, it's mind-blowing. People are living in an echo chamber where they, they sometimes see the facts in front of their eyes and they don't want to see them. It was, again, from Twitter, there was a nurse whose parents died. They had various comorbidities and they died within, of COVID within three days of one another. They were not vaccinated. Neither is she. And she said, I think people are judging me. Like, yeah, well, because your parents' death may have been prevented. And that is really sad. You lost your parents due to something that could have been prevented. You know, is it, it's, it's like, it's not okay to judge. What am I to judge? But I, but I can say this could have been prevented and you haven't prevented it. So am I judging you? I don't know. I'm stating a fact. And that's not nice and that's not fun, but it's just the reality. Other things that are happening here are the issue of trust. Do I trust the doctors? Do I trust pharmaceutical companies? And there's this whole question. Someone said, we don't trust anyone who ever got a grant from a pharmaceutical company. Guess what? I got two grants from pharmaceutical companies. They don't own me. They paid for me to do studies and I take them for it and that's it. And that doesn't mean I am now working for them and promoting their products because that was never part of the agreement and I would never do that because I'm a scientist. And the last thing, no, the, the thing before the last, there's comprehension, there's understanding. And that's always huge of, do I understand? What is this vaccine doing? How is it working? People are afraid that it would hurt their fertility, that it involves a chip. It's like, are you kidding me? But you really have to understand that this is not the case. You have to understand and you have to trust whoever is giving you the information. And the last thing is, I think it boils down to a question of values. What are my values? And some people are saying my values are that I have freedom to do whatever I want. Okay, including to put yourself in danger and to put me in danger if I'm near you, and to put my mom in danger, who's a very senior citizen, if I'm near you and you're not vaccinated and you're carrying something. So that's it's a question here, and it's very deep. It's profound of what are we as a society? What values do we promote? And what what are we asking people basically to sacrifice for the sake of these values? And guess what? So something's got to give. We can't all live together happily ever after, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, and, and unharmed. That's just, it's not going to happen. And indeed, it is not happening as we speak. Now, so I get all that. And if I just play a little bit of devil's mm -hmm. advocate, I think some people who, in the case of the COVID vaccine, it's, it's easy to say, well, if you haven't taken it, you're a dumb fuck. And they're definitely dumb fucks <laughs> who have dumb fuck reasons for not taking it. But there are smart people who have decided for reasons that they think are are well thought through not to take it. It's not fully approved by the mm -hmm. FDA. It hasn't been out for very long, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's some amount of people, uh, and we seem to have a lot of this in America, who, um, you know, don't tell me what to mm -hmm. do. The government can't tell me, et cetera, et cetera. They ignore the fact, by the way, that the government has been forcing vaccines on people for <laughs> decades. You can't go to school without a polio vaccine right. in the United States. But that's neither here nor there. My point is... There, thank, thank God for that, right? Oh, fucking A. <laughs> but there are some smart people who, who, who have thought about this. And for their reasons, 
say, I don't want the vaccine. And so I guess the, if, I, if I zoom back out for a second, mm-hmm. what are the tools that you would uh, sort of give us to make what we believe are wise healthcare decisions? And in the case of some people who believe they're smart, who believe they've looked at it, and for one reason or another have decided not to take this, sort of what's the lens that we should use for making, in this case, life or death healthcare mm-hmm. decisions? I think, you know, this is fascinating because never before have so many ethical issues risen to the forefront of our medical discussion and our just life and cultural discussion. And I think what happened with COVID is we moved away from making personal decisions like, for example, you know, if you want, if you are obese, if you aren't taking care of your diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, it's your life. If you aren't vaccinated, it's different because you're affecting me in a direct way. You're always affecting me. We're we're very intertwined, but it's much more direct. It affects whether or not kids can go to school, whether or not they can go to work, whether I teach via Zoom or whether I, you know, give talks internationally via Zoom or I get to go to Japan or all of that, all of that, like everything is, is affected. And I think we've gone beyond the point where we can say, you know, if you should, if you look at it this way or that way, you're going to change your mind. I think at this point, and it's actually what's happening, society looks at itself and says, we have COVID, it's happening. It's basically becoming a chronic condition. It's not going away. You know, we, we went into lockdowns and we thought it's going to end. Well, guess what? It hasn't ended at all. Uh, who knows when it's going to end? It's not looking great. Um, what does society want to do? And society can say, if you're not vaccinated, you can't come to school. If you're if you're not vaccinated, you can't go into metro, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it's your choice. And you can choose not to vaccinate, and then you're banned from the museum, and that's fine. But there are consequences, and and you know, and and honestly, that's life. There are always consequences to every single choice. So I think at this point, it's. <laughs> It's almost like in the Westerns, like when you, when you got to shoot, shoot, don't talk. I think we're, we're pretty much done talking at this point. We just have to decide what we can live with as a society, what we agree to tolerate and what we do not agree to tolerate. And the, the truth is that people are saying it's taking away my liberty, but if you are not vaccinated and you're affecting me, you are also taking away my liberty. So how about that? We need to find, I, I can't even say we need to find a happy medium. Uh, a not so crappy medium, I think, is what we should aim for. Well, and it, this one's a fascinating one, right? Because we as a society made a decision a long time ago about drinking and driving, mm-hmm. by way of example. So the way I look at it is, and maybe this is simplistic, you'll tell me on sort of how, how, these de- how we make these kinds mm-hmm. of decisions. Our society says to me, hey, listen, Lockhead, if you want to sit in your house all day, and power lift whiskey, have at it. We're not going to stop you from drinking yourself to death. So if you want to drink six bottles of whiskey a day, go mental. And of course, we all know what the likely outcome of that's, that is. But we don't stop you. There's many, many things that you and I can choose to do that society lets us do. We're allowed to go skydiving. I love to go skiing. Some people say that's a very dangerous thing. I love to go scuba diving. Some people say that's a very dangerous thing. Nobody stops me and says, well, you know, 
blah, 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 about people who die doing these things, you're not allowed to do them. Well, my answer is, fuck you. I'm going scuba diving, right? However, if you go back to drinking and driving, I can drink as much as I want until I get in a car. Yes. And then we say, well, wait a minute. You're allowed to kill yourself. You're not allowed to kill other people. And so if you get in your car, you're now a killing machine <laughs> and we're going to stop you from doing that. And over time, we've made the ramifications of doing that uh, more and more significant. However, on this disease, for some reason, that logic has not held through. So the debate around my personal freedom, you can't put a needle in my arm without my permission. Well, on its face, that seems to make sense. My body, I can do what I want. At the same time, to your point, there is a drinking and driving mm -hmm. element to this, which is, hmm, if I am not vaccinated, I've chosen that for my reasons, but that then means that A, the likelihood I get the disease is very high, and B, the likelihood that I spread the disease is also very high. And as we know, these new variants are much more transmissible than the older ones, and maybe there'll be new ones coming that are even worse, and who the fuck knows what's going to happen. So I guess my point is, from a medical decision-making point of view, how do we make decisions where we're weighing our own health versus, quote-unquote, the greater good? I think we need help. I love your example, by the way. I absolutely love your example. You can drink yourself to death. If you can drink, wow, six bottles of scotch. I, you know, I, I get drunk by, from a chaser. So kudos to you if, that, if that's an accomplishment. Um, so I love the example, and I think we can relate to that. S six would be a lot. <laughs> I do think I consumed... I do think I've consumed 18 beers in one day, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. But you did not get on the road. And that's the difference. You were not a danger to others. You could drink, you know, maybe you woke up and you had the most miserable headache ever. But guess what? That, that was the consequence. That was the consequence. And the consequence of uh, drinking and driving can be terrible to others, or you could just get arrested. And that's a consequence. And nobody cares about your rights. You know why? Because you're infringing on other people's rights and you're putting them in danger. And I think we're not, we're unaware of how much as a society we're constantly making these decisions. Um, do you remember when Mayor Bloomberg wanted to ban or, or actually banned the sale of, of the large, very large soda bottles? He said that's unhealthy. People were livid. Okay, but it's actually, yes. it's, it's a libertarian paternalism sort of thing, or even not so much libertarian, more paternalistic. But let's talk about organ donation. If everyone signed up to be an organ donor, people who need a donation would have to wait far less uh, time in line. There would still be a line, and I know that because I gave a keynote address for Donate Life America, and I was, I was very impressed with their work. But if that was the law, if that was an opt-out, if people said, Lockheed, I'm not asking you. You're an organ donor. If you're adamant that you don't want to be one, send us a letter. We'll get you out of the list. That's opt out. So if you really don't want to be an organ donor, you wouldn't be one. But if you're kind of on the fence or you really don't know, you're a donor. And that's that's actually fine because everyone else is a donor, too. So God forbid you need a kidney. There are so many more people who could give you the kidney and you benefit and society benefits. So I think that's key. That's where we draw the line. I can't say 
you know what, Chris, I need a kidney. I'm I'm just going to grab your kidney because I'm more important than you. I can't do that because that harms you and benefits me. But I can't say, I'm making you a donor. I'm going to be a donor too. We're all going to be donors with the opt-out option and society's going to benefit and people are going to benefit. And I think that's where we're drawing the line now with vaccines. That's why people who work for the government have to vaccinate. Healthcare professionals have to vaccinate because it benefits them. It's, it protects them against COVID. And that's a good thing. And it protects society and protects the people they come into contact with. So that's the type of decisions now that society is making sort of for us. And it's always making decisions for us, as you know, you pointed out with the drinking and driving example. You, you, do, you don't get to choose. Nobody says, do you like this? <laughs> it's like, that's, that's the law, buddy. And, you know, like speed limit. Exactly. I don't care if you love driving real fast. I don't well, <laughs> we, I don't like those laws either, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine that you comply. No, I don't like them at all. I have a 668 horsepower Shelby Cobra Mustang, and I think that uh, 65 is, uh, uh, is dystopianism, if that's a word. Uh, extraordinaire. <laughs> and I think in America, if we're going to call them freeways, <laughs> let's make them fucking free. But I digress. <laughs> uh, on the <laughs> on the opt-in, mm-hmm. so if many of these choices were opt-in, and then you could opt mm-hmm. out, I understand that. It's hard to make a vaccine opt-in. I mean, I have to physically get in my car and drive somewhere, and they got to stick that thing in my... Yes. like. So we can't... So in a situation like this... How do we encourage people to make the decision when a lot of people, and I think, by the way, the, 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 Repub- the, the Republican me in me, the libertarian mm-hmm. in me, uh, I'm a radical independent for the record, but um, says, yeah, you know, if, if, I, if I let the government tell me I have to do this, then what else, what precedent does this take? You know, so when, when we created the, um, all the laws after 9-11, mm-hmm to allow the government to surveil us in a way that they couldn't before the thinking at the time was, well, listen, we need to do everything possible to stop another terrorist attack. And part of what that means is, you know, we have to keep track of communications and we're going to go do that. Well, now we look at that and go, uh, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, that's starting to sound a little bit like China to some of us. And so I think there's an argument that says, well, if we let the government do this now, what then are we setting ourselves up for in the future? Does does that play into medical decisions in your mind, doctor? Well, of course it does. But, you know, as you mentioned, polio, what's polio? Have you seen a polio patient recently? You haven't because kids have to vaccinate. And therefore, we've eradicated polio. I don't even know what the symptoms of polio uh, are uh, anymore. Yeah, it's iron lung and, and early death. It's terrible. It's really, really terrible. And, and thank God we don't know that because it's been mandated. So it's a fine line. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a fine line, but we have to decide what are we giving the government power to do. And in a way, we have to work with the government. It can't do everything on its own. I mean, we want the president, whichever president we voted for, we want them to solve the problem. But they can't do that on their own. They can bring vaccinations. They can't force people to vaccinate. But if we want to go back to living kind of normal and I call it the new normal. I never thought I would walk around with a mask. Guess what? I own 
a bunch of masks now and I use them freely and I always have one in my, in my pocket and in my per my various purses, cause I'm a lady. Um, so that's, that's a new normal. And if we want to go back to the new normal and we don't want it to be a really bad one, then we want the government to help us and we need to help the government and we need to decide. And as you said, you know, the government does set rules and does limit us with drinking and driving, with child vaccinations, with various things where it believes and we tend to agree with it that it's for our, that it's for our good. I mean, America has had problems with guns for a long time. And no one has said, let's ban guns. People are saying, that's my right, and I want to maintain that, even though sometimes people get hurt, and sometimes people get hurt in a very big way. So I think Americans are very good at drawing the line, sometimes too good at drawing the line. And at this point, we really want to go back to living a, a kind of new normal life, and we need help. And the government can say, you know what, you don't want to vaccinate I'm not going to force you, but you can go into restaurants. You can't go into university. You can't sit in my class. Um, you can't come to my talk on digital health because you're not vaccinated. You're putting me and everyone else at risk. And that's your right. Your right is not to come, not to vaccinate. And my right is to say, you can't come in. That's it's, it's not, it's not fun. It's never fun. Yes, that, that I understand. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the famous line, we, ref we reserve the right to refuse service. Yeah. Right? We can decide you're not allowed to come to the museum. We can decide that you're not allowed to come to our office unless you X, Y, Z. We can decide to do that. Right. And the thing is, and people hate this rhetoric. They hate it. But it's not like, oh, look at you. Oh, I don't like you. You can't go into my museum. It's you. You made a choice, and therefore you can't go into my museum. If you reverse the choice, you would be able to go into my museum or restaurant or school. or Yes. Now, if the technologists are right um, and the medical researchers are right, we stand on the edge of some massive, massive breakthroughs that appear to be coming. Mm -hmm. Diagnostic breakthroughs, treatment breakthroughs, surgical breakthroughs, uh, trans, uh, uh, transplant breakthroughs, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so um, our ability to understand all this technology and all, understand all these new categories of treatments and so forth is de minimis. You, you know, we're, we're, we haven't even adapted to the, the smartphone mm -hmm. yet. I mean, it's brand new in terms from an evolutionary yeah. point of view. And so as the technology breakthroughs continue, my assumption, you, you please educate me, is that the healthcare decisions that we all are going to make are going to be more complex, more nuanced, uh, deal with much more factors, much less black and white. Just like with COVID, new information will be coming out that will make things different. And we go, well, how come it was it was one way six months ago and it's a new way this? Well, we learned. And so my point is the complexity around our own healthcare decisions looks to me as a layman to be increasing at a pretty exponential rate here. What tools would you give us as layman's to try to make sense of what's going on so that we can make the best informed decisions for ourselves and our loved ones? It's a great question. And I started answering it in the book and I wrote takeaways for patients and I'll tell you about them in a minute. And then I thought, but wait, wait, wait a minute. They're not in this alone. I have to have takeaways for doctors like to how to explain information and how to explain probabilities and how to generate 
a relationship and to honor the relationship because that is so meaningful. Because if I am your doctor and I don't even look you in the eye and I don't remember your name and you don't, you don't really feel I care about you, you're not going to persist with the treatment regardless of how wonderfully sophisticated it is. And if I offer you choice and there's too much of it, and you know, this Sheena Yengar from Columbia University did a, did a great study with jams that people love it when there's a 24 jams, uh, jam jars assortment, but they have no idea what to choose. So they just walk away. They taste a bunch of things and just walk away like, ah, oh, I don't know. So as a doctor, you need to help your patients understand the information have the relationship with you so they trust you and choose. That's crucial. You have to help them. If you're not helping them, it's abandonment. Masquerading is empowerment. Telling you, you know, you can, you can handle this is a lie. Are you smart? Yes, you're smart. Are you very capable in your life? Yes, you are. Do you drive a Mustang? I would love to go for a ride. Yes, you do. Does that mean you can make every medical choice? No, no. And it's a lie. If I tell you, you can do it, you can't. And that's fine. It's absolutely fine. You need help. And the person to help you is your doctor. But, and here comes the third set of takeaways, it's also your healthcare institution. Because if your doctor doesn't have the time or the training or the tools to help you and to educate you, they're not going to do a great job, not for lack of trying, just because they can't. And it's on the healthcare systems to help us with that. And by the way, they benefit from that. You're going to walk away much happier. You're going to adhere with the treatment. You're going to be more satisfied. You're less likely to be readmitted. They make more money. Everybody wins, but everyone has to chip in. So you asked about breakthroughs, and I'm, I'm sort of taking you back to things that are basic, like understanding and relationship. But that's, if you don't have that, you have nothing. You have nothing. And if you have a bunch of fancy technology that you don't understand and you don't know what to expect, that's not going to end well. You're not going to know what to expect, what to choose, uh, who to trust. And these, these are things that are, they're the basis. And they're the basis in the most important way, because if you don't have good foundation, you know, the, the prettiest building is going to tumble. Now, of course, this gets to another dilemma, particularly here in the United States, but elsewhere in the mm -hmm. world is um, maybe I don't have a relationship with a doctor. Right. Maybe I don't really even have a doctor. Maybe I can't afford one. I mean, my doctor is amazing, but we live in the United States. Yeah. She's not cheap. And so, you know, it would be wonderful to say, I want everybody to have this level of care. And I actually do. But we live in a reality in the United States where most Americans can't text their doctor and get a response. And I can. And so how how, how does the how does a normal person who, who can't afford, you know, highly specialized, personalized health care develop a relationship with a doctor such that she can make these complex decisions when maybe she hasn't had the uh, privilege of a 25 year relationship with a doctor um, that has has made the investment to get to know her. So you're describing an ideal condition, an ideal situation that I wish was the case for everyone. Clearly it isn't. I think again, going back to the takeaways for doctors and healthcare systems, it's really important for both of them to understand how crucial this is. So even if we're talking about telemedicine, 
even if you're doing an online consultation with a doctor who sees you for the first and last time, they don't know you. They should still make every effort to address you by your name, to look at you, to ask you questions, to make sure you understand, to follow these very simple rules and, and practices in order to be effective and in order to, to make a win. And I, I want to I bring up an even more extreme example. I was consulting this company, that the healthcare insurer, and they came up with a new model for insurance. And they sent me their mock-ups. I looked at them and said, you've got to be kidding me because you're asking people to put in their credit card info. It's like, we have not been on a date together. What, what are you, <laughs> get your hands off of my whatever, you know, <laughs> who, who are you? So you have to have a relationship and a level of trust always, always, even if it's an app, you have to understand what are they doing? You have to feel that they're, they have your benefit in mind. You have to know what's behind this. And that helps. And that's, as I said, it's a foundation. You have to include it in every level of care. When you have a 25-year-old doctor, it's phenomenal. When you have a five-minute consultation, you also have to walk away feeling like I spoke with a person who's a professional and they know their stuff and they told me what to do, but they're a person and they looked at me as a person. And that's huge. Yes. Well, I was just thinking of the other doctors I have had in my life that aren't long-term relationships or they're fairly mm -hmm. a short interaction. You know, by way of example, I just had an eye exam uh, to update my prescription. And uh, the doctor I went to, I've never seen before. I don't know if I'll see mm -hmm. again. The technology for eye exams is unbelievable as far as I'm concerned. It's some Star Wars shit. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this guy was a younger doctor. I don't know exactly how old, but if you told me he was 30, I wouldn't have been that surprised, uh, which, you know, to me is a quote unquote kid. Yeah. Um, anyway, his bedside manner was fantastic. Mm -hmm. He was fun. He was clear. Uh, he, 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 he realized the kind of person I was personality wise. He realized he could sort of have some fun mm -hmm. with me. I'm a talker like you. And so he was wonderful. Another recent example was uh, my most recent colonoscopy. Never met this doctor before. Unbelievable. Funny bedside manner. Great staff. Nurses, great. Everybody wonderful. Very clear in their communications. Answered my questions. Mm -hmm. And to your discussion off the top, you know, the end of my colonoscopy wasn't that bad. And so I left walking well. You know, if I had to have that done, um, you know, those are nice people to do it. And they did it nicely to me and et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess this leads me to a question, mm -hmm. which is, you know, today in business, we talk a lot about the experience Yes, and the experience is the brand. And so how is it possible? You know, we hear in medicine, the bedside manner. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out, and I say this like a, like a customer, the bedside manner matters a lot as it relates to the experience. When I walk out of the colonoscopy going, you know what? If somebody has to shove a tube up my ass, I'd like it to be those people. Uh, yes, I wouldn't quite put it in these words, certainly not in an academic paper, but, um, I was really curious. I, I, I go, I have, I said, I mentioned, uh, an old mom, I take her to doctor's offices and there are a lot of letters, framed letters on the walls. And I became very curious and I decided to analyze people's thank you letters to medical centers, uh, analyze a hundred of those. 
And what I found is that people, as to your point, are as likely to thank the doctor for their medical care as they are for their personality and demeanor. Now, the funny thing is, when they thank them for care, they say, thank you for the great care, or thank you for the good care. It's like, they don't, they lack words. And you know why they lack words? Because I, they just don't know. Like, you operated on my knee, you used the right scalpel. Who knows? I don't understand this shit. But you were kind to me, or that's my experience. You know, when I had gum surgery, the, the assistant held my hand because I'm a scaredy cat. So that was nice. Like she cared about me. She held my hand. She knew. And the doctors shoved his huge fingers in my mouth and I never went back there because I felt he didn't care. So we definitely are very attuned to the interpersonal touch, to the, to the fact that someone cares about us, explains to us. And when I read when those letters that people write, they don't say, you know, you completely cured me. Sometimes they say, well, I haven't quite healed yet but I'm getting there. That, that, that's fine. That's to be expected. We don't expect our doctors to make miracles. We do expect them to care about us, like to really care. And people would say, I like Abdul. He always comes to the waiting room and takes me to the examination or the technician sat with me and explained you didn't have to do that. These are very tender moments and people appreciate them. So that's the experience. And by the way, it doesn't just happen uh, in the bedside manner. It happens everywhere. How is the receptionist speaking with you? So um, I have a good friend who's a fertility doctor. He has an IVF clinic, Dr. Paco Arandoto in Texas. And he said that they make a point that whenever a woman calls and she says, hi, I can't find my prescription. And they ask her, what's your name? And she says, and then they transfer her and they say, this is Rebecca. She can't find her prescription. So basically they're not making her tell her story again and again and again. They're with her. They're, they're virtually holding her hand. It's small. It's very small. It's very, very meaningful. And when I, I went to get a wheelchair for my mom after a surgery, the guy, at the parking lot smiled at me so nicely. I almost cried because I had crappy days with her at the hospital and I'm an only child. It's not fun. It's not fun. When you get to these facilities, you're not in the best mood. You're jaded, you're, you're tired, you're concerned, you're bummed. And to have this experience is an overall experience. And if the person at the parking lot smiles at you and there's parking, oh, you know, you can breathe a little. That's, that's huge. And people who organize that facility understood that. Tyler, it's so interesting you mentioned this because... I hadn't maybe given this enough thought as you're talking. Mm -hmm. I was actually thinking about my dentist. This is the experience I have at my dentist. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as you're explaining, I'm thinking, wow, what you're saying is exactly why <laughs> he's my dentist. I show up there. It's an open concept office, right? The receptionist is wonderful to me. She uses my name. She says, oh, we've been expecting you. You're here for your 8 a.m. appointment or whatever the thing is. And because it's open air, my dentist can hear that I've arrived because he's, you know, a few, a few steps mm -hmm. down, maybe working on a, a patient or whatever. And he will yell out my name. Hey, Chris, can't wait to see you. Hope you're good. You know, and, and, and there's a casual feeling in the yeah. office, right? And, and, and the hygienist is the same way. And, 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 and so it feels like going over to a friend's house for, for a beer or a coffee more than it feels like, okay, now they're going to poke around inside your mouth and do all this stuff that's miserable to you, right? 
And so that friendliness, that welcoming, that treating you like family or friends, uh, as you were talking, I was like, wow, that's a big part of what I like my dentist. Of course, that's the experience. And, you know, notice you never said, and he's a really good dentist. So like you have beautiful teeth, by the way, I can, I can see um, kudos to the dentist and to you for taking care of them. But, you know, you don't know if he's the best dentist in town. You do know that you like the service. You like the way you are treated. You're treated as a person. First of all, you're you're a person. I, I write for psychology today. And, I, and when I was so frustrated with my dentist, I wrote, I am more than the sum of my gums. Like I'm, I'm an actual person. I have feelings. And if you want to work with me, be nice to me. And if you're not nice to me, I'm just going to find me another dentist. And that's huge. So for everything from the staff, everything is important. And in fact, when you look at uh, rating platforms, they ask a lot about these things. Mainly, I think, because they also can't really ask patients to gauge how well were you treated, because we really don't know. But they do ask, was was the staff nice? Was the office clean? That sort of thing that is, is superfluous, but it still matters. If you sit somewhere and it's grubby, you don't feel respected. It's not nice. You don't want to be there. And, yes. And, and that's And that's part of the experience. You said something really powerful, and I think this is true for me and my dentist and me and my doctor. If you said to me, well, is my dentist the greatest dentist in America? Is my doctor the greatest doctor in America? There's a chance they are. They're very well educated. They have very good practices. They're well respected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I can't tell you that. I don't actually know that. I think they're probably, you know, very high end, very well respected, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is not possible for me to have a doctor who gives a shit more about me than Dr. Kathy Halston. That's not possible. And you're going to stick with her and you're going to recommend her. My biggest fear is she retires. <laughs> She's not allowed to retire. Of course not. <laughs> She's only allowed to retire after I die. <laughs> many, 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 many years from now. Um, so, so from a commercial standpoint, many, many, I'm cause I'm going to live to 150 at least, you know, if not, if not 225, so what you're telling me is that you're benefiting from the treatment. I assume that whatever she tells you to do, you do because you care about her and you trust her and you're not shopping elsewhere. You're not in the market for another doctor. So you're really showing me that the experience matters. It matters a lot. And, you know, if you look at digital health, there are so many apps out there. There's just so many of them and people will choose one because they like it because they understand it. Maybe it's a little bit fun. That's why, that's the experience. And that, that, was, that was amazing because I sometimes work with engineers. So the, first, the first gig I had with digital health was an entire company that were on the other end of the line. I was in my office at Princeton. They were showing me something through shared screen. This, it was more than 10 years ago, this dashboard. And some of them have actually been pilots. So this dashboard of where you are, are you in the green, are you in the orange, are you in the red? And I looked at it and I said, this was clearly designed by engineers. And the CEO, he said he couldn't sleep for a month after that because the information was there. That was fine. And I had the same experience with a, a company out of Denver who was developing something for adherence. The capabilities were there, but they were not delivered in a humane way. They were not clear. 
they were not, they were certainly not fun. Um, there was no accounting for with the dashboard. What are we going to do if you're in the red? Do they say, oh, Chris, you suck, by the way? That's not fun. You're not going to, you're not going to come back. We want you to come back. We want you to get in the orange. We want you to get in the green. So you have to take care of that. And that's the psychology intersecting with medicine because otherwise we could give everyone just the same old app and not build any psychological mechanisms into it or any user experience into it. And you just use it just the same way you're supposed to adhere to your medication every single day. Yes. And these new apps I find very, very, very exciting. And this idea of the internet of bodies as opposed to um, the internet of Mm -hmm. things I find fascinating. Well, doctor, I could clearly talk to you for centuries. Uh, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, You have a world to go transform and educate. (laughs) Amen. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Uh, Yeah. I want to tell your listeners, first of all, that you're awesome. They already know that. And that making medical decisions is hard. It really is. It's hard for everybody. That doesn't mean you're incapable or incompetent. It just means you have to arm yourself with the best tools for doing that. Read my book. Your life depends on it. What you can do to make better choices about your health. I promote it shamelessly because I really think we need all the help we can get. Amen. Hallelujah, (laughs) sister. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Thank you. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for your work. It's it's more important today than ever, and it'll be more important tomorrow than ever. And, and so helping us all understand how we make medical decisions in a world of rapid breakthrough and change is an incredibly important thing. So uh, bless you, and you're welcome back anytime, doctor. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Dr. Taya Marone Schatz. Her new book is out, and it's called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices about your health. And if you love this episode as much as I did, why not share it with somebody that you love right now? Also want to share with you a few of the folks we have coming up. We're on a string of legendary ladies. Uh, and soon we have coming up a gal who I consider an angel on this earth. Uh, you know, those people, those very few people you meet in your life who just have that special kind of, I know this sounds corny, but almost magical quality to them. Well, that's Karen Hibma. She's one of the most creative people in the world, one of the most creative and dynamic thinkers, marketers, and designers that I've ever met. She's a designer who focuses on strategic identity, and she's helped uh, create identities and brands for people like Amazon, Apple, Estee Lauder, Levi's, SF MoMA, TiVo, and even the White House, and she's coming up very soon. Also coming up soon is New York Times best-selling author of a fascinating book called Duped, Abby Ellen. It's a stunning conversation about how she almost married a complete scam artist, and she's an extraordinary gal, and we have a very fun conversation. And coming up super soon is the Korean vegan herself, Joanne Molinaro. She's got a new book coming out called, you guessed it, The Korean Vegan, and so much more. All right, we would like to thank our friends at NetSuite. In times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical to survive and thrive, and that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. You see, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in to scale up, spin off, and adopt new business models wherever and however you need to. With NetSuite, the power and flexibility are built in. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Malibu Milk, milk spelt with a Y, are the world's first whole plant organic flax milk created by a mom. 
Now, if you're like me, you've probably tried soy milk, almond milk, oat milk, and a bunch of other alternative milks. Well, now it's time for the whole plant organic flax milk from Malibu Milk. And when you go to MalibuMilkWithAY.com, on checkout, use discount code DIFFERENT15 for a 15% discount on your first order. Malibu Milk, the small, tasty change that makes a big difference. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out at OneLifeFullyLive.org today. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you're into marketing, don't forget to check out our other podcast. You guessed it, it's called Lockhead on marketing. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. His podcast is Grumpy Old Geeks, and it's one of my top five. Check it out. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. Don't forget to spread podcasts, not viruses. Subscribe to Category Pirates. Because if you're not reading Category Pirates, then you're not reading Category Pirates. And don't forget, we're offering a 20% discount on subscriptions of four or more. Don't forget to shower with a friend. We have a water crisis here in California. Uh, make smart healthcare decisions. Your life depends on it. Thank you to all of our healthcare heroes. Listen to Tom Waits. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay healthy, take good care of each other. Uh, Of course, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.